You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. guess what? I've got a new book coming out. It's called The Goddess Discovered, Exploring the Divine Feminine Around the World. And it is coming out on December 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide. This book has over 500 deities in it. Part one of the book will take you into the ancient world where you will learn about ancient religions that you may have practiced during your past lives and you'll explore goddesses from the ancient Celts, the Norse, the Egyptians, the Greeks and Romans, and more. And then in part two, we will explore living religions, current modern religions, and the deities worshipped by people during our own modern times. In part three, you'll have a chance to take some past life regressions and even genealogical regressions to connect with the places where your ancestors may have worshipped these deities in the past. Pre-order The Goddess Discovered and you'll receive a free gift, a guided journey from me through my healing arts platform. I hope that this one will be a book that you will have on your shelf for years to come. And I cannot thank you enough for your support of this book. I'll have lots of events coming up. But meanwhile, you can pre-order The Goddess Discovered. And I thank you so much for your support. Namaste. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Care. Hey, my dear friends, welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I'm super excited today because we have the Emmy Award winning Bill Harvey on the show. He is a multi-published author. He has a fabulous website that I'll have the links to below. It's called humaneffectivenessinstitute.org. He's an um, award-winning multi-published author, an expert in media. Bill, it's a great joy to meet you. Welcome to Healing Arts. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you too, Shelley. So congratulations. I know you just won um, several awards for your visionary fiction with the Coalition of Visionary Resources. I think you've just been inducted into a Hall of Fame. You've got an Emmy. You've been very successful in media. And I was looking at your fabulous website. I was hoping that we could begin 
by starting with what you talk about as a child, the things that occurred to you about how to become more effective in our lives? Well, you see, I was, um, as my parents put it, I was born in a trunk, meaning that we were in showbiz and I had no choice. I had to go on stage, which terrified me. And uh, eventually I discovered while performing that I was in a different state of consciousness. I was doing everything automatically. In fact, I wasn't doing anything. I was looking at myself kind of from above and behind. I was watching myself give the best performance I had ever given. And I didn't know what that was, but I wanted to stay there forever. I wanted to be able to get back into that, what I now call, thanks to Dr. Csikszentmihalyi, I call it the flow state, which is the name he gave that condition. So uh, that became my lifetime goal was to discover what that was and how to be there more and how to share that with other people. Well, you've definitely done a lot of it. You've got a really awesome book called Mind Magic. And then some of the other ones I just read, um, The Theory of Everything and You Are the Universe. So one of the things I thought was interesting that I've thought a lot about that you talk about in your books is this idea that it might be a good idea for all of us to recognize that there's a consciousness speaking through us. And what if that is coming from God or the higher power rather than just some fictitious bubbling up of our imagination? So speak about that and how people could learn to recognize that. Well, I, I have to go back to my childhood because I was, my religion was science. And so I, I assumed that I was an atheist. And when I was 12 years old and I had been separating in my mind the different voices that I heard in my mind into, oh gee, that's just a tape of that person I look up to. That's what he says, so I'm just mimicking him. And other voices in my mind that were more me, authentically me. Um, and then voices in my mind that seemed to be giving me terrific advice. It was instantly obvious to me that there was one voice that was never wrong. And, and when something was said to me from that inner voice, um, it commanded all my attention. And um, so I was 12 years old and all of a sudden I hear this, that voice in my mind say, I am God. And so is everyone else. And there had been a line of logic that led up to that, that I couldn't retrieve from memory. It had gone on subconsciously or at the fringe of consciousness. So I couldn't bring back why I said that, what led up to it uh, for decades. Eventually I figured it all out. But knowing that it had come from that voice, I gave it a tremendous credibility. That voice had, I associated that voice with the flow state and um, identified that as being a, a part of the flow state, that, that inspired inner voice. So um, having had those experiences, I could no longer consider myself an atheist. Um, what, I, what I see now is that there's nothing supernatural or strange 
about us all being part of the one conscious universe. If we just assume for a moment as a possibility that the universe could be intelligent and that its consciousness could manifest itself as each of our individual consciousnesses and perhaps at some point in our future, some other future life, we'll actually be more than a human being and closer to that one universe mind. And then at some point be fully back in that universe mind completely as a permanent perspective, returning to where we came from. None of that is necessarily anti-scientific. It's just that science has, without realizing it, closed its mind to certain avenues of exploration. Yeah, I totally agree. So do you believe that everyone has access to listening to this God voice within them? Yes. Then the thing is, I, I hear this a lot from readers, as I'm sure you do. Why do you think it is that people are having such a hard time tuning into that voice that would direct them in the best outcomes? I feel that um, something that's natural within our consciousness, which Freud called the ego and described as a uh, kind of a, a manager, uh, I think more of as a press agent, but um, nothing wrong with the ego. It was built in, it's okay, it's got its function. I, I believe that it's become like a, a swollen appendicitis ridden appendix. Um, and what's swollen it is to some extent the what I call acceleritis that for the last 6,000 years or so, things have been going faster and faster and faster and um, we don't keep up with it. And, and what we are conditioned to do by the present culture, which has been actively in denial against the God possibility um, for centuries, in, in the present culture, all, all, all these things that occur to us naturally, like who am I, why am I here, what's it all about, uh, are not paid attention to. We don't spend time contemplating them. We, we shove them you know, down in, in the back of our mind and uh, leave them there and they fester. And um, meanwhile, we are running our lives from the ego and it's kind of a defensive reaction a coping strategy in uh, a situation that has caused us to panic, basically, like this is too overwhelming. Uh, and, and the only way to keep up with it is to simplify it and make everything into a black and white decision. Uh, there's good and bad. And, you know, if I immediately sense something is bad, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pay it any respect. And so, you know, we, we have gone to a certain degree insane as a, as a human society. And it's not too late. And, and um, you see the opposite every day. You see the, the younger generations, not as distorted as we are until they become distorted, but um, 
they come in with hope and open minds. And um, then there's people who are discovering meditation. There's people like you and me who are trying to do something about all of this, trying to communicate rationally about it without being um, cold fish and unemotional about it, but being human about it. Yeah, it's such a great point you make. I really have always felt that the society right now is so distracted and it's just getting more and more so with all of the content. And I know you're a media specialist, obviously, but with the media and all the different kinds of ways we consume content right now, I think that there's a, a real need or a people think it's a need that they need to distract themselves, like you said, and and the more of this, it's even if they don't want to, it's just being thrown in our faces all the time. It's harder and harder, I think, to hear that inner voice. Or as you've said, you know, they just don't not recognizing it at this point. I agree also, though, that people when they're younger, when they come in, they have, um, I think we all did, we were all bright eyed and coming into this world. And then we had some things happen. And then we turned things off. We don't want to listen to the intuitive advice, I think. Um, I know for myself, once I figured out, oh, you know what, if I would follow that, things would go a lot better, duh, you know, then eventually, um, I think some of us decide, you know what, I think I'd rather do that than have things just not work out as well. I think it takes um, maybe some time to get to that point. I don't know. <gasps> yeah, so, no, I totally agree. Um, how do you, how do you recognize the difference between something that's purely Bill and something that's of that higher God nature? Are there traits to it or how is it hard to define? Well, um, the, the bill part is um, the, uh, what I call the observer state where I'm, uh, I'm aware that these impulses are arising of themselves in my consciousness and uh, I am observing them arise without necessarily agreeing with them initially, uh, particularly if there's negativity involved. That could, kind of gives me a clue that that's, you know, I'm my ego is, is trying to take over again. Um, then that that higher self is the flow state. You know, there there are these. I think in, in the book, uh, you are the universe. I expound this hypothesis that there are five levels of the flow state. And um, the, the lowest level of the flow state is where it's in your body. So athletes get that, violinists and so on. Um, there's that level of flow state. Then the next level up is the emotional level of the flow state, which is bliss, where it's everything is just perfect. It couldn't be better. And we were just enjoying it. And then the level above that is where it's in the intellect. And there I can I can tell that voice because it, it sounds Shakespearean to me. It's not necessarily in meter uh, or in rhyme, but the language is perfect and, and the brevity of it is amazing. It takes very few words to say so much that at first it's something that you would treat as obvious and you wouldn't write it down or take any notice of it. It's just an obvious observation, it's useless, but it's actually profound. And now that I'm used to the game, I can detect that faster, 
and write it down and, and realize that uh, it's coming through from above, that it's inspired knowledge. It isn't being generated locally. Yeah, that's amazing. Speaking of this, now you have been so successful in your media career. I think it's pretty inspiring. The, just the career that you've had there and then the fact that you've started the Human Effectiveness Institute. So how did you, when you were trying to hang out with your nor nor normal <laughs> friends, which, you know, I'm not normal. Okay. But, um, you know, what did they think or how did you first approach this? As I know now everyone knows, you know, all of who you actually are and all that you're bringing to the world. But what is it like? I, I think this is one of the things that probably holds people up. They're like, yeah, but what if people think I'm weird or, you know, how am I going to function in a normal job with these kinds of thoughts and things? And I think you've done it so well. So. Well, thank you. But, you know, in the beginning, I was very cautious about it. And uh, I, I kind of kept my day job and, and my secret identity separate, uh, just out of a sense of caution, which was um, probably made worse by um, like one client I had in the 1990s. Where, and I had been doing this now, you know, I wrote Mind Magic in, in the 70s. Um, so it had been a couple of decades and I was still playing it very cool. Uh, but I, I would share Mind Magic with really close friends, including this one guy who was one of my clients. And he immediately attributed it to psychedelic drugs. He, he said, you know, Bill, you know, where'd you get that stuff and where can I get some of it? You know, and, and he, he made light of it. And I, I realized that I wasn't actually being crazy or cowardly by my caution. But I, I persevered in, in gradually tuning up the volume on, on that side of myself to where I am today now, where it's completely out in the open and, and I'm not schizoid in, in two personalities. I'm just one thing and uh, everyone can see it, take it or leave it, like it or not. Um, and it's certainly, you know, a lot more comfortable way to be. And I think it's also more conducive to getting my ideas across. Hopefully it is. Yeah, I think, I think the world these days is a lot more open to a lot more things, fortunately. So I think we really have shifted the consciousness in that way. Um, but yeah, I think myself and others really do spend a lot of time trying to hide these certain aspects of the self because you're trying to just get in, get along with regular people or whatever, and you don't want to shock them. But it seems now, I think we're all more open to those kinds of things than we were before. I agree. I agree. Um, and, you know, in some cases, it's being expressed in ways that are initially not altogether positive, like uh, the surveys that have been done for, you know, decades showing um, the reduction in church going and people considering themselves to be a Christian or a Jew or this or that. Um, I mean, it's both healthy and unhealthy at the same time. It's, the ethical impact is, you know, initially more towards nihilism, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, but at the same time, there's this sense that it isn't a loss of spirituality. It's just a change of the brand 
from being something identifiable as a worldwide institution into kind of more of a personal relationship with the universe that is undefined, but not closed off there. You know, there's an openness among those people who are switching away from religions. I, I don't see them all just becoming non-spiritual. I see them questioning which direction of spirituality to go in. Yeah, that's really becoming a global phenomenon right now. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, the argument is that these religions have done more harm than good and they have problems with their uh, clerics um, with child uh, sexual abuse. And, you know, I, in my book, A Theory of Everything, I, I try to say, let's put that on the side that, you know, I don't disagree with those arguments. I just don't think they're relevant to the question of could the universe actually be intelligent? If the universe can be intelligent, if, if the word God has been given too many associations that link it with these religions that you're angry at, let's not call it God then. Let's just call it the one self or the original consciousness or whatever you want to call it. But let's not just assume that it's impossible. There's no scientific evidence that it's impossible. There is some scientific evidence in favor of, for example, John Wheeler's uh, participatory anthropic principle that we are co-creators of the reality we observe. We're arresting the probability wave so that it becomes concrete matter that we can perceive with our senses and until we observe it it's a probability wave it isn't a concrete piece of matter i mean that's one of the world's leading physicists no longer with us um einstein made you know use of the observer in all of his thought experiments both einstein and wheeler were cautious about not offending the scientific community by going too far in the direction of exposing their own concepts of spirituality, although there were one or two peaks that are on the record that were, were given of statements, which I've put in my book, um, validated statements made by uh, both Einstein and Wheeler, which are very close to what I feel the universe is. You, yeah, your book, your book on um, Einstein and Wheeler is fantastic. and. I wanted to know, do you believe that, you, you mentioned in there that, that everything that is in our mind, whether we're consciously aware of it at this moment or not, if it's in there somewhere, that eventually it's gonna show up in the outer material world, either as something wonderful that we want or something that we have been keeping in our mind because we're afraid of it. And so do you think these things are pre- ordained or predestined or are we creating them ourselves or is God the source or whatever again I agree with you also you don't want to call it God fine just call it that animating force that enlivens everyone and inspires us is that the source of this information or are we creating these things with our thoughts this is something that I've wrestled with myself over the years I, I feel intuitively that we are given free will, that we are actually choosing things. And um, it's supported by 
my sense that it would be boring otherwise to the oneself. That th this this makes it a more enjoyable game, having all of these uh, pieces of itself making mistakes and learning from those mistakes over long periods of time and becoming God again, but you know from the bottom up uh, as opposed from the top down. I think it's all part of the, the game and it's, a, it, it's certainly a more profound way of learning or relearning fun, fundamental ethical principles by going through this process of initially not having ethical principles and then watching what the consequences of that is yeah, the instant karma. We can we can see what happens when we do good, and then we can see what happens when our choices maybe aren't as lovingly guided, and then see these things for ourselves. And like you said, hopefully when we have things go wrong, we hopefully figure it out and make different choices in the future. Inspire. And, and and I think we can we can help people um, speed up that process, but they have to. A, want to do that, and, and B, know what the strategies and tactics are, like how you, you, you can't be distractible while you're trying to get into higher states of consciousness. You have to have an alone space that no one's going to be able to interrupt you. There's no device that's going to ring, and there's just you're, you're, you're in an uninterruptible situation, and, and that's where you can begin to evolve yourself and become stronger and more effective and more have more mastery over what it is that you're here to do and achieve. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You mentioned meditation earlier. Um, meditation has been one of the best gifts that I've ever given myself <laughs> through the years. I think you're so right. I mean, I, I think people are, are, again, largely daunted by the idea of meditation. They think this needs to be um, you know, I need to be in a lotus position. And if a single thought crosses my mind, then I must not be doing it right. So I'll never do it again. And yeah, obviously nothing could be further from the truth. So and, and what kind of meditative strategies would you recommend to people? Maybe if they're, they're in that state, they're not ready to do meditation yet. Well, they, they certainly don't have to be in a given posture. They, they could, in fact, be in um, an uninterruptible location in a bathroom stall in a hotel, in a lobby, uh, or in a, in a business office. And they've locked themselves in a stall. And for the moment, nobody is going to interrupt them. They could be anywhere, uh, even in an interruptible situation. They could be sitting on a bus or a plane or something. but. All they have to do is observe carefully without attaching their, um, their will uh, to the inner experiences they're having, but just to observe those inner experiences. You know, just to say, okay, like I'm, I'm a, a lab subject that I'm gonna be studying as if I'm outside myself. I'm just going to be studying myself and I'm not going to be agreeing or disagreeing with any statement I make in my mind or any emotion I feel or any image I see. I'm just going to be trying to see what's going on in there 
and, and suspend judgment and suspend agreement, disagreement. Don't take over ownership of those feelings or, or thoughts. Just have a little arc of separation. And, and, and that, that's my basic meditation strategy is to contemplate myself, to observe myself. I think that's so true. Um, I had wound up at Vipassana several years ago, which is the, supposedly the original teachings of the Buddha. And so the only direction was to sit and just observe your breathing. And if pain you know, came into the body because maybe you were uncomfortable, rather than trying to fix it, just observe it and then just watch it as it arises and it passes away. And the teaching was showing you that no matter how you know, if things are wonderful right now, that's great. If things are horrible right now, just hang on for a minute because every minute that we're alive, our cells are moving and transforming. And so things are going to change around us. And so the circumstance could be, you know, different. And again, exactly as you've said, just to observe the self without trying to fix everything. I think that we have this unfortunate need in the society it's good i mean we want to fix things but we can't fix everything we sometimes should just observe what is or at least come to accept that so then we can move from there to try to come up with solutions to problems and things by first accepting how things actually are and that was a big one for me because i always like to uh kind of keep the rose-colored glasses on and you know i do think very positively but sometimes just saying you know this is what it is let's just deal with it and then we can move into trying to create something better so what do you think of any of these kinds of ideas i totally agree with all of them you know i i think that um in the beginning focusing on the breath um also having a mantra are are very reasonable strategies for almost the entire population during this pandemic of acceleritis and we're just so totally distracted and more so now with with digital media than ever before um, that trying to go directly to observing thoughts and feelings might be a bit ambitious and that it would be better to learn concentration before trying to get all the way to contemplating the self. So right. the breath or a mantra are potentially uh, intermediate baby steps, training wheels that give us the power of concentration and the habit of concentration. And once we have the power of concentration, then it will naturally move to the next level to observing the motions and the modulations of the mind. Yeah, that's a great point too. I had done um, transcendental meditation in the earlier 2000s. That was my first um, really entree into the idea of meditating. And that's where we do have a mantra. And I don't think people realize, yeah, the mantra is just a repetitive statement that you carry within the self. And you don't really have to go to a course or anything. You could just say love, 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 or happiness or peace, or just, and just repeating these things in the mind then distracts that ego that you mentioned earlier so that we can start to open up. And it, it really changed my life at that point too. So it's a great point. And I think, um, again, does not have to be as difficult as people might imagine. 
I know some people are afraid of it. They, they think that it's going to drive them crazy or they suspect they were already crazy, but they've got it under control and meditation is going to break the control. Yeah, definitely. I think it, well, it does start to bring up like deeply embedded thoughts that maybe you haven't had in a while. And so I've just learned just, okay, there's a thought, let's just think it and let it go and then just keep moving on. So. Yeah, let it float downstream. I, I know that when I'm getting a rush of ideas and they're, and I feel that they're good ideas and it's kind of like flow state inspiration, there's a, a, a natural greedy acquisitiveness that makes me want to write them all down, but that tends to break the flow. And if I just let them go downstream, uh, but then a moment later, if there's a break in the action, I then try to remember, okay, was there, there were three ideas. What were they? They were this, that, and this. Okay, so I got those three ideas. Let me repeat them again. Okay, now let me break them down into, make a picture in my mind that suggests all three of those ideas all in one bundle. Okay, now I'm not going to forget that as easily. Let's see if I can hold on to that. Now let me relax and more ideas then come. Uh, but I've, I've got this mnemonic method so that if I wake up in the morning, I say, well, let's see, there, there were six things. They were in two bundles of three. One of them was, I okay with that, was that picture. Uh, and I can reconstruct it. That's a really good point. When you were saying that about trying to capture something you're so busy trying to capture it that now you're not in the flow that you were in a minute ago it kind of reminds me of what's going on these days which i have been very guilty of you know with these phones that we have that are such great cameras it's so fun to go around and take pictures of everything but to the extent that everybody's there with their selfie sticks and stuff they're so busy and distracted by pushing buttons on a phone that they're not there to see the grand canyon or whatever it is that they're supposed to be enjoying and so we're missing out on the actual moments by doing too much of this as you've described observing things rather than just being in a flow and connecting with nature and other people yeah the, these these toys are devilishly mind commanding you know particularly in our weakened state when we haven't contemplated the major questions in life because who's got time for that and you know we're just trying to keep our heads down stay in the herd it's protected that way don't step out of line say the things that people are expected to say do the things and it's all you know kind of a bit false but it gets us through. And in that state, we're more manipulatable, unfortunately. And, and, and it's, it's a shame that advertising gets invaded from time to time by people who are into manipulation. And at that point, it becomes more like propaganda warfare rather than like advertising. And that's something I've been working against most of my advertising careers to say, look, this, this is, you're putting up like a false front here. Why don't you just communicate at the level of natural communication? Take your CEO, go on camera and, and talk about 
what 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 the company is trying to do to make life have a higher quality. Um, how are we trying to help people, including our own employees and stockholders, and what's our philosophy? And we're, we're you know, and um, being being more of an authentic human to human communication doesn't have to be this constant falsity and condensation of stuff that grabs your attention, keeps you focused, and then shows you a picture of the brand and hopefully that's going to make a difference. It's, it's so mechanized and um, non-humanistic yeah, and therefore ineffective. Yeah. It is geared towards, I guess, hooking people on the product rather than just saying, hey, this is what it is. If it's good enough, it should stand on its own. It should. And, and if it's not good, maybe people will tell you how to make it better and you know, you can make it better. I mean, it's, it's all, it's also difficult because of the pace at which we're driven and we are not giving ourselves any break from that. We don't, I mean, what if people just took 20 minutes of alone space a day and didn't call it meditation? Just, you know, the rules would be, you can have music on, but not with lyrics. And, um, and calming if you're going to have music and and it would be better if you were in nature you know though the just 20 minutes a day in nature it would all do itself it would unwind the knots if you did it every day it would be enough to get started but the culture is is standing in the way of its own higher goals and and we're becoming somewhat self-destructive and this isn't the time to be self-destructive. We got too many dangerous things laying around, weapons and stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. You mentioned something um, a couple of minutes ago that I was gonna ask, and that is your book talks about um, the big questions, the, you know, what are the big questions in life? And I think you're exactly right that unfortunately we are distracted and so, we don't ask those questions. I think that when people get into a snag though, or something difficult's going on, sometimes they're slammed out of that trance that the media or the telephone and the, the programming is putting them in. And then they start to turn then to that spiritual nature and ask some of the big questions in life, which you go over in great detail in your books. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about your thoughts on these big questions that everybody really asks whether they're consciously aware of those questions or not? Well, I, I think I think that the first question in mind magic that, that um, comes close to, to what you're asking is chapter five, which is about what are my wants? And then inspecting each one of my wants to make sure that they're really my wants they might be wants that my parents wanted me to have and for a long time i've considered to be my wants but are they really my wants are they wants that i want to have what you know what wants do i want to have and um how much of this is really just about approval of others 
how, ma how many of these wants really just represent what I think is going to get me approval by others? Is that what I really want? Approval from others? What about approval from myself or approval from above? Or why, why, why is approval so central anyway? And then um, if I'm no longer attached to approval, am, what am I attached to? Simply surviving and, and, and not dying? No, actually I'm not attached to that either. Dying is probably just gonna take me to some other place where I'll have to learn new stuff and it might be fun. Uh, so, so what am I doing while I'm here? Well, I think it's obvious that I've been given certain gifts that I've been very lucky to be given. Great parents, growing up in showbiz, having more open-mindedness around me as I was growing up than the average person, um, not being as stuck as the average person in certain ways of being and doing things. Um, and then getting all this tremendous advice that took me out of being a compulsive, obsessive, somewhat destructive young boy past all kinds of ego stuff and desire to be a soldier and past all of those things. And now I've got, on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I have a wonderful life I'm enjoying. What am I here to do? I have to try to share these things. That's what I'm trying to give the world. That's why I'm here. This is conduit to share this with the world. I wasn't just given this for my own personal pleasure and self-aggrandizement. That would be boring. Trying to bring this to other people, which is incredibly challenging. That's, that's the thing to do. That's what I want. Not that everybody has to come to that want, but I think the first question to ask is, what do I really want? Deep down inside, the real me, what do I want? Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, I wrote this book called Creating the Life You Want, speaking of this topic, where I was having people just write lists out. And I, I showed them a list of values because I think everything you're saying is so true. Like we don't, I don't feel that most of us, and this would be myself included. I mean, obviously, you know, life is a, a school where we're all trying to do better every day, but I think we constantly need to be asking ourselves, what do I want? What is it that I value? And that dream that I had 20 years ago, is that still a dream? And like you said, where did that come from? Was that an expectation? And does that still feel good to me now? Does that still feel like something that's contributing to others? Because like you said, without doing that, then what's the point? I mean, and I think that this is really largely something that people should work on. I think they think, again, it's probably daunting, but sometimes I think it would just involve just making some lists, writing down, like, what are these little, what do you call daydreams that you have in your mind? Let's write them down and as you've said earlier with your own journey, think about, wow, where did that come from? Is that from Bill or did that come from Bill's parents or the society? And then start just getting in touch with that. It's not as hard as people think, but yet I guess it does take time. But I agree with everything you're saying on this because the journey to taking that time out for self to get in touch with that aspect of yourself is 
is so valuable and it can really bring greater joy and peace into your current life experience so that you can then help other people. Uh, it's, it's such an important point and it comes out so early in the book you sent me, um, journaling, making lists um, were essential to my development. Couldn't have done it without those things. They're foundational. Yeah, it's I'm important. a journal advocate because you're getting in touch with yourself or let's say you did an exercise. Let's say we read your book and you said something and I, we have a thought, like you said, we don't need to analyze today where that thought comes from, but that thought is worth making a note of because a future version of yourself might be very excited to um, read what you wrote about that thing that you read, you know? And I think that we, we're leaving ourselves clues along the life path if we will only take the time, you know, to pick them up and, and take a look and see what they mean. Beautiful, totally agree. The other thing you mentioned as one of these big questions that I think a lot of people have, a lot of people I've encountered, they wanna know like, do I have a purpose? Am I here for a reason? And so you have that question in your book, why am I here? You know, and where am I, what is this? You know, these are very important. So can you talk about why we need to know or at least think about why we're here? Well, purpose, mission, I, I think is, we need it. Each person needs to have a feeling of, I'm here to do something important and good. And what is it? What, what can I give? What do I actually have? Um, what, do I, what am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? That's a big clue. If you enjoy doing it, it's something that you won't shy away from practicing. And if you practice it, you become better and better at it. So just... You know, what is it that you do well and, and what gifts could you bring to humanity and, and what would be fun? What would you not tire of? What's sufficiently important to engage you for a lifetime? What's worth your time for a lifetime? You know, an, an, another, another question, you know, about what is this thing going on here? You know, what is this? this? You know, we take it for granted because it's always been there, but it's pretty weird. And the weirdest thing about it is the sense of being enclosed somewhere behind our eyes, that our consciousness is some someplace inside us. We're looking out, peering out at all this other stuff. And um, we're assuming that all this other stuff is really out there. When actually all we experience is what comes in. So there might be nothing out there. Or it could look quite different if you were actually out there and, and looking at it. At any rate, the fact that consciousness is more provable than matter. You know, we, we, we infer matter based on experiments we do with metal boxes and machinery and and all of that seems realer to us, but all we actually are experiencing is what comes through our senses into our consciousness. The only thing we can really swear exists is, as Rene Descartes said, you know, I think, therefore I exist. I would reword that as thinking is going on, therefore something exists. And 
um, yes, call it I, but maybe it's the big I rather than Rene Descartes, the small I, maybe it's, it's all of I. Um, but those kinds of thoughts about consciousness have been played down in the culture for thousands of years. They pop up, you know, Plato, Bishop Barclay, um, but Kant, but, but nevertheless, um, we, we favor this idea that there's a um, x-axis, y-axis, z-axis, three-dimensional enclosure called matter and energy, time and space, its reality, it somehow came about accidentally. Things crashed into each other until they became self-replicating. And out of the self-replicating, they became life. And out of life became consciousness, as opposed to the other way around, where consciousness could have started the whole thing. And it's much more likely that consciousness started the whole thing than crashing and banging, resulting in this degree of complexity. Yeah, we do like to make things about a 10,000 or a bazillion more uh, complex than it really needs to be. And when you talk about those images that you were conjuring in my mind, um, I, I think about Plato, I think about Rene Descartes, of course, but I also think about something more modern, which was the Matrix, like the first of the three Matrix trilogy where, you know, Neo is in a vat and he's hooked up to a machine and he realizes he's just a thing that exists in a vat of goo and none of this is real. So, you know, that could even be going on, Bill. I mean, we don't know. And speaking of visionary fiction, um, you have written several novels and I do love to, you know, interview fiction writers here as well. So I'm curious, when you talk about this God source that comes down, is this where you draw your fiction on? Do you write the, are you like a panster or a plotter or how do you come up with these fabulous stories that you're telling? Well, they could be memories of other lives. Um, they could be um, fantasies. They could be anything, but <clears throat> the purpose of, of the fiction is to try to convey the exact same ideas as my nonfiction, but to try to do it in a hopefully more accessible way. When I say accessible, I have multiple meanings in mind, like people prefer to read fiction. More people read fiction than read nonfiction. Um, in a way, I prefer fiction if it's really at the top level of writing. You know, if I really love the, the writing, um, then I would rather read fiction. And, and if it carries the same message, you know, wh whether it be uh, free will or um, the existence of an original self, so what I'm writing about is my theory of what is really happening here. And uh, there's a series of sci-fi novels, hopefully someday major feature films, but um, right now they're novels and the same characters appear across the whole series. In, in the uh, first novel in the series, The Great Being, it's the beginning of this, universe. So one self exists. That one self 
initially identifies itself as nothingness. But as soon as it identifies itself as anythingness, light starts to stream from it. And then it discovers it can make forms appear. And then it discovers it can actually take a position inside the forms, looking out the eyes of uh, a creature, a created being. And then also being able to look out from the eyes of the created being without remembering that who one really is. And then realizing that, that there's a certain amount of fun involved that way because there's something unknown. And, and, and the unknown is interesting, it's mysterious. It's attractive. You want to peel the onion and find out the secret. So it's it's good to hide from oneself that way and inhabit creations uh, that are then given their own free will and agency and series of incarnations to come back into the one by growing back the capability of paying attention to everything that's going on within the one which would otherwise, you know, at our level of evolution, we couldn't withstand that much information coming in at once. So I can see in future lives gradually becoming greater and greater beings on the way back to being the one being. So not all of that story is given away in the first book, but the story has begun. Then there's a rebellion that one of the created creatures gets out of control and rather than simply destroying the created creature that's getting out of control, the one self plays out, okay, let's see where this goes. But um, in order to protect this creature from harming other creatures, let's try to create um, a, a kind of an agency, the agents of cosmic intelligence, a group of cre creatures who are there to try to keep the rebel and, and the rebels followers from causing suffering. Minimize suffering is the real purpose of the agents. And, and then to, to watch and see how the rebel eventually digs out from misconceptions and comes back into the oneness. But again, not all of that is stated. You know, we just see pieces of the plot unfolding, but we're following the same five agents into um, the period of time from uh, the Mahabharata through uh, the crucifixion. That's book two. The First Son is the name of that book. And then there's many more books that I haven't written yet in between. And then there's The Message, which takes place only about 20 years from now. And then there's Pandemonium, which takes place right after The Message. So th those are the books that have been written so far, but they're all about this. Oh, and, and along the way in the message and in pandemonium, the modern stage, <coughs> acceleritis is explained and, and how the culture is distracting itself from facing the big questions. So it's, it's my theories again, just packaged in fiction. I think it's more fun that way, but the combination is designed to kind of do the job.
Yeah, reach everybody wherever they are at. You, you've got a great Hopefully. point, though. I think you can reach people in fiction because people are willing to let go of their belief system and suspend that for a while and go off into a world where they can expand their consciousness and thinking in a way that they would not think would be appropriate maybe in the nonfiction realm, which is, is kind of an interesting phenomenon, I think, that you bring up, which is it's a great point. Also, um, even in mind magic, <coughs> excuse me, even in mind magic, I only achieve getting people to see through my way of seeing my own mind in a couple of places. Too often in mind magic, I'm teaching, summarizing, abstracting, but not reporting the act, what the actual experience feels like. I do hit that at various points, but in, but in fiction, it's all experiential. It's all like life. Yeah, that's a great point too, because fiction allows you to go into scenarios where you are experiencing things yourself, where if something's scary or something's, oh, we're worried about somebody and then we're so happy, then we can do that in a way, we can express our emotions in a way that we're not having to experience ourselves, but we're doing it on behalf of someone. I think that's very, very healing. Um, I've, I'm a big believer in people reading fiction also because I, I enjoy it for the same reasons that you do. It's very important. So your work is amazing, Bill. Um, tell us about your website and what we can find there. Well, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's got a, about 100 videos, <clears throat> many of them just a couple of minutes long. Um, some of it is a lot like mind magic, but it's in a video mode rather than uh, in, in a book mode. <clears throat> There's also a section in the website that is all of my blog posts going back. It's 15 years, I guess. And there's another section <clears throat> that's kind of aimed at scientists, psychologists, trying to express in their way of wording things um, what my theories are. <clears throat> um, then, um, you know, I have two other websites. Uh, one is called rmt.solutions and it's a um, aimed at the media and advertising industries <clears throat> but it's essentially it's an expansion of maslow's theories based on actual empirical work that i've done in my business career and and might also be interesting um, and then the bill harvey consulting website is all about my consulting business, which is really an attempt to apply mind magic to business situations. How do you get organizations to be high-performing organizations collaborating with each other in ways that are fun and effective? That is fantastic. Friends, there is so much on Bill's website. We will have the links below. Bill's got a great YouTube channel. I'll have the link to his author page where you're going to find tons of amazing books. 
And I love your videos and everything that you're doing. Um, I wish you continued joy, success, happiness, and just keep putting it out there. We love it. And uh, just wishing you many, many blessings as you continue this incredible journey that you're having, Bill. Thank you so much, Shelley. And, and thank you for your work, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing your book and to experiencing my previous lives. Thank you. Friends, we've done it again. Another episode of Healing Arts. So I want you to check out all of Bill's amazing work. I'll have the links below. And I can't wait to see you again on the next Me episode too. of Healing Arts. <laughs> yes, and Bill will be seeing you too out there. So <laughs> namaste, friends. Namaste. Hey friends, have you wanted to access the Akashic Records but had no idea how to do that? Well, guess what? My new book, Journeys Through the Akashic Records, will take you step by step through the process so that you can access other realms of consciousness for your own healing and transformation. This book will show you how to open the door to this wellspring of information meet with your spirit guides, do present life healing, psychic protection, go out into the field of possibilities to access your higher soul's purpose, meet your guides and helpers, your soul group, and so much more. Again, over 50 guided journeys await you as you access the Akashic Records and receive information that is personal to you for your healing and self-transformation. Check out the book now. Just go over to my website, pastlifelady.com. Click on the book link and order today. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at pastlifelady.com or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady.